We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Ryan, let's dive into the mailbag and let's start off with, uh, I, I appreciate this comment from Alan Watson. You're both freaks in journalism. Thank you. And then is, is that good or bad? I don't know. I think it's good. good. Alan, Alan, I think you meant that in love. I'm going to, at least that's what I'm going to tell myself and uh, make me feel better. Tommy Guns had a question that I, that I thought was interesting. Is Cam Hart what Dante Vaughn could have been had he stayed healthy? I, I would say this. Brian, I don't know if you agree with this or not, but I think Cam Hart is significantly more talented than Dante Vaughn. I think Dante Vaughn should have been a much better player mm-hmm. at Notre Dame if the injuries did, if injuries did not occur. Because, I mean, when he was a freshman, I was like, dude. He, he was their be best corner when, they were, when he was a freshman. Yeah, yeah was, he was their was best like, corner in 2016. I was like, dude, he's going to be a baller, right? And he's and it's a similar in the sense, Tommy, that they're both long and super big corners, sure. But I just think Cam's a better athlete overall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, he's definitely a better athlete. I mean, that's the thing is, even with all of Dante, Dante was really good as a freshman because he's long, he's pretty strong, he has really good instincts. You know, as a corner guy, he played the ball really well. You know, mm-hmm. flipped his hips okay, but it was really just about the length and the speed for his length was good. Yeah, Cam is freaky for it athletically. And I also think the other thing that helps Cam too is Cam is a lot more fluid and clean as an athlete. You know, Dante was always a guy that was either going to be a press guy or an off guy. You know, and, and as a press guy, I was like, if he if if you if he doesn't jam you at the line, he's in trouble. Yes. And we saw that against Clemson. You know, he missed on some jams and he just got he just couldn't recover. Cam's got better recovery speed, but we never did see Dante at his best because of the injuries. And, and Mike Elko, for whatever reason, just you know, just didn't wasn't as high on him as he was other guys, which is fine. Uh, I don't think he necessarily fit that system a whole lot. He did get a chance to kind of earn some playing time, but even then he just, he couldn't stay healthy, but he had some really good games in his career. I mean, he was in 2019 against Virginia tech. He was outstanding. It just, he couldn't stay healthy and, and he never got back to being the, his peak athlete, but Dante spent like two years in the NFL with yeah. the chargers. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it says a lot, but yeah, he, they're different players, different players. I, I would say, Tommy, I understand where the comparison comes from. I do. 100%. 
I do. Similar, I, similar yeah. sized guys, yeah. right? I mean, like they're both about six two and some change and have long arms. And yeah, I totally get where it's coming from. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, no issue with that. But they're different type of players, and the upside for for Cam is much better, um, much better than the other. Agree. Got another one here from 99 Proms BK1. He says, I mean, I'm not actually surprised. I don't know. Foskey seems underrated to me, but my Notre Dame fandom might cause me to overrate Foskey. I don't think that your fandom is causing you to overrate Isaiah Foskey. I think no. that's the thing that that you know you when I when I'll ask myself, Ryan, okay, am I overrating a guy? Mm-hmm. It's when I'm the only person that feels that way. Right. And it doesn't mean I'm gonna change my opinion. But at mm-hmm. least means I'm going to be like, okay, let me rethink this. Like, I know you and I have both done this with Jason Adamiola. Yeah. We've both gone back and like, okay, I'm just going to watch the film again. And maybe I'm missing something. Maybe I'm overhyping him or I'm overlooking some holes in this game or some flaws and things like that. Right. And you go back to it and you're like, no, I still feel the same way. So yeah. I, I, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But I'm going to, you know, I'm still going to, I'm still going to own it. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, you know, but, but Foskey's, a guy that's getting the love everywhere. It's not just Notre right. Dame fans. It's, it's NFL draft people. And it's, it's, I mean, Bruce Feldman a year ago before he even broke out, had him on the freaks list, right. Yeah. At number 45. I don't know if Foskey's done to not be on there this year, but you know, it is what it is. But uh, you know, I don't think 99 that you're, you're over. The only way you can overrate Isaiah Foskey, you're like, he's going to be the number one pick and he's going to have 19 sacks this year. <laughs> and you know, okay, buddy, like pump the brakes. Yeah. But no, if you think he's like one of the best edge players in the country and he's a freaky athlete for pound for pound, no, you're not overrating him. You're kind of saying what everybody else that's evaluated him thinks about him. And, and you should always check your bias, though. So mm-hmm. I, I agree with you completely. Like I, I graded out Isaiah Foskey very high from an NFL draft perspective, but I know that I have an allegiance to Notre Dame and I have mm-hmm. a fandom, right? So I was, I reached out to three to four different NFL scouts, mm-hmm. and then I get the NFS report back, also from the NFL side of things. And everyone's high on Isaiah Foskey. So I was like, mm-hmm. okay, cool. I'm I'm just verifying basically that I'm not yeah. biased in that regard. Isaiah Foskey is a fantastic talent, fantastic player. NFL people like him. College football fans, for the most part, give him, mm-hmm. I think, the due, his due as far as being one of the better defensive linemen in college football. So I don't think he's – I don't think you're overrating him at all. I think that he is a fantastic player, one of the best players in college football, in my opinion. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Somebody asked, where does Feldman get the data? Uh, coaches, team coaches, and strength coaches. Yes. Yep. Directly from the school. Yep. So the, he'll, he usually does his rounds in the preseason. So he'll be around to the schools, checking in with the head coaches, the strength coaches, calling people, doing all that type of stuff. So uh, Bruce does a great job in that regard. He does his due diligence. He's on the road for months. <laughs> He's calling, calling people for months. So it's directly from the coaches that see these players mm-hmm. every day. Yep. Uh, we got Josh Buffo, the motivational business banker, Brian and Ryan, in his day back in the 80s. How freaky was Brian Bosworth? Also, where would you rank him on greatest college linebackers list? Thank you, as always. Great show. You want to go ahead I, and I, take I, a first crack at that a little tour before your time? I, I know the legend of the Boz, right? I know the mullet. I know the, you know the getting run over by Bo Jackson on the goal line. I know what he accomplished in Oklahoma. I have all that historical context for him, but I didn't personally see him play. I know that he was... I even saw his – didn't he have a 30 for 30 on mm-hmm. Bosworth? It was very well done. Very yes. well done. I loved that. I, I thought it was really it was really fun and just kind of entertaining in, in that regard. And I, I know yeah. a good amount about Bosworth, but, like, I didn't actually see him play at right. Oklahoma, right? So, like, I don't know I – I don't have context for telling you how freaky of an athlete he was. And he was also admittedly on steroids. I mean, true. so that's true. a thing. And it's he's, like very, said, he's very open about it. Very yeah, open about yeah. It. yeah. Well, I mean, and it when you know what he's overcome in life, you understand why he's so open about his struggles. I mean, it's part of his yeah. testimony. And it's it's really funny because I grew up watching when he was the boss, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I was a child of the 80s. I remember the, you know, the renegade he was, and I didn't particularly care for him back then, you know, and, and uh, you know, I've now come around to being somewhat similar to his viewpoint on what the NCAA is all about, but <laughs> Yeah, he was a great player, but you know, I don't know if I mean he wasn't like Jalen Smith. He wasn't like that kind of athlete. You know, I you know, he was he was really, really good. The thing about the Boz, though, he was also part of his greatness was just about the persona of mm-hmm. the Boz. I mean, he was a great linebacker, but like I don't know if anyone would say, Hey, this guy was an all-time great when you popped the film in. It was just it was more about the persona. He's a really good player, but then the persona, I think, was part of it too. Yeah. Uh, but that's the funny thing is so like my wife and I, one of the, the streaming channels we subscribe to is a, is a, it's called pure flicks. And it's like either Christian shows or like, you know, wholesome shows, things like that. And uh, there's this series of like post-apocalyptic, like post rapture, like wild west type shows. Right. And Boz mm-hmm. is one of the, 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 the guys in the in there, he's in wow. a bunch of Christian movies. So then I'm like watching this other Christian movie, uh, and it's uh, it's called What You Believe, and Boz is in there, and he's this really nice guy that like takes care of this little girl, and he's dying of cancer, and all. It's just like that's not the guy I remember growing up with the crazy hair and the steroids, and you know, and all that kind of stuff. It's it's a pretty that's, cool redemption story. That, yeah. That's really funny, man, because yeah. he was actually in the Longest Yard as well. Remember yeah. when he was yeah, like a, oh, he was a guard right. in the Longest the Yard, one with, yeah. Uh, yeah. the one with Adam Sandler. Yeah, yes. that's right. Yep. Yeah, he was in there, I forgot yeah. about that, but yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's really funny seeing how his life has completely changed from what it was before. Good for him. Good for uh, him. It, it really is cool. It really is cool. But that's like that's not the Boz I remember growing up. <laughs> but my point is that's why he's so open with his struggles. 
-hmm. it's a part of his Christian faith and saying, Hey, look, you, you got to own who you were to truly find redemption and salvation. So yeah, uh, it, it is pretty cool. It is pretty cool. And he, I mean, I mean, and let's be honest, man, he was kind of like, he was a trendsetter, right? Like yes. how many mullets did yes. you see growing up? And then I mean, even right. coastal Carolina is still yeah. rocking the mullets today, right? right? Like he, I mean, right. he was revolutionary in that. Yeah. Regard. And then like the cr crazy stuff on the side and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Yeah. He was a, yep. he was a weird guy. Very weird guy <laughs> back in the day. Yeah. I like him a whole lot more now than I did then. Blaine Tiller says, B Ryan, what excites you more this year? The start of the season or the end of the current recruiting cycle? Well, I call it even, but for completely different reasons. Yes. I mean, honestly, it's always going to be football for me, right? Like, I just want to get to the mm -hmm. season because I'm excited about Notre Dame football. But, Blaine, in a couple recent days, I would say that I am looking forward to the signing day and just to get this one over with because, man, some people are overreacting big time. But mm -hmm. it's always, always always going to be the start of football season for me yeah I, it's a long off season without it yeah I, i'm always more of a football guy than a recruiting guy but i'm not gonna lie to you just the constant panic i mean in this chat is a perfect example about <laughs> recruiting is just like it reminds me of why i don't miss covering on a daily basis and why i hired you to do it because yes yeah i just uh yeah definitely it's, football it's, season. it's it's exhausting at times it's exhausting yeah at times. it really yeah. is Especially now in this era of clickbait, that now we have to respond to every like clickbait thing that gets put out there, and just it's yeah, just yep. it's it's yep. maddening. John Leahy asks, "B Ryan, do you think that Prince Kali could end up on this list next year?" That's an interesting one, John. I think, I mean, athletically, he's. I mean, I don't know what kind of test three is, right? Like, I mean, mm -hmm. for, from the film I've seen, looks like a freaky dude, right? Like mm -hmm. he can move, he's explosive, he's well put together. You could talk me into it. It's just, but the other part of it is, John, is like, we talked about it. You, most of the players on the list do have the name recognition stuff too. So if, if Prince plays a lot this year, which we're hoping that, you know, he can obviously carve out a role, but if he plays a lot and he's somewhat productive and then he has those types of crazy numbers, it's possible, right. but it's just, mm -hmm. if he, if he doesn't break out this year to a degree, then it's just, he's not going to be the first guy that you talk about for a Notre Dame football team, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. I don't, I don't, I think he's a good athlete. I don't think he's a freaky athlete for me. I don't think he's quite that level of guy at this point mm -hmm. in time. Got another one from Brandon Plensner. Brandon says, which NDDBs do you expect to be matched up with Marvin Harrison and against Smith and Jigba the majority of the game on September 3rd, especially since Harrison is a 4-2 guy? <laughs> Um, I mean, I think the easy answer for me, Brandon, is I know Brian, like we talked about this yesterday, Brian thinks that Smith and Jigman might play a little more outside, right? But I it's think more that, than last year. Yeah. Yeah. More than last think, year. Sure. More because I just think they're going to move him around more is, is what mm -hmm. I mean by that. Right. Not that right. he's going to become the X, but I just think they're going to move him around more in my opinion. Right. Right. So, I mean, in, in this theory for me, I'm going to think, I think that Marvin Harrison Jr. is probably going to play more into the boundary. Right. So, I think that to the field, we're going to see more Smith and Jigba, and then even Emeka might be a guy that plays a little more to the field. So I actually don't think that we'll see a ton of Cam against Marvin Harrison Jr. unless he's playing more to the field. I think that that's – I mean, unless Cam is switched and is playing more into the right. boundary like we've talked a ton at. But how it currently stands, I actually think that Cam's going to see more Smith and Jigba and Emeka than anything, right. in my opinion. Right. Based on where they lined up last year, yes. Yes. Because I do think he's going to play more outside, Jackson Smith and Jigba. 
Mm-hmm. I don't think he's playing like the boundary a whole lot. I, I could, sure. again, I could, but I could see him. This is where I come from. Like Ryan day to me, he, if he's smart, he's got to know that like last year it made sense to play him the way that they played him, but there's things you can do with him. Is he that he's not smaller than Devonte Smith and Devonte Smith played every game. You'd see him in snaps in the boundary just yeah. to, just to, cause you could do some things to create isolations. You could run off the, the wide side guys, you know, run like vertical routes, you know, kind of a, 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 a kind of a three layered all verts from that side, you know, vertical seam, backside seam, or run two guys sort of right up the middle and then one up the seam because you're trying to run the coverage off, you know, and so getting guys to flip their hips because if you run a backside seam, then you can cause guys to kind of turn and then they will see a drag route or a crossing route. But if you just kind of keep them vertical against a team that likes to play a little bit more man or pattern match, then you can do things with that boundary where you can kind of bring them on a delay drag cross where you're clearing that mm-hmm. out. I mean, there's things that I think they'll do stuff like that. Are they going to put them into the boundary and say, Hey, we're going to run comeback routes and back shoulders the all day. No. It, you, why not have a Mecca and Marvin Harrison do those things? They're bigger players, but I do think, I just think, and if you're Notre Dame, you got to be prepared for that. Right. And if they don't do it, if they just leave them one spot, then it makes it easier for you to have a, at least a schematic plan for them. It doesn't make it easier to stop them. It mm-hmm. just makes him easier to know where he is and have a plan for him. And then you got to execute in order to stop him. But that's that's kind of the difference. And, and I think I think you also have to mention Tariq Bracey, obviously. I think he's gonna be a big player in the slot, right? Like if we right. see Jackson Smith and Jigba playing a ton in the slot, I anticipate that Tariq's gonna have to have a nice game, right? Yeah. Like I think he's a very important player. I mean, because we always talk about you know Cam Hart taking away this guy and Clarence Lewis doing a, a good job on the other side and Ryan Barnes doing whatever. Not many people talk about the, the the nickel corner, though, right? And I think mm-hmm. in this offense, when you have so many different good wide receivers, whether it's a Mecca working in the slot, whether it is Jackson Smith and Jigba working in the slot, whoever it ends up being, the nickel corner, I anticipate Tariq's going to play a lot in that football game, and he needs to have a good game, in my opinion, for Notre Dame to have a realistic chance to stop that offense. Yep. Good one. The <laughs> John Wayne's Winchester, Bama and Notre Dame meet in the playoffs. Uh, Will Anderson rushes against Blake Fisher, let's say 10 times. How many pancakes does Blake get? 11. I'd be happy with one or two. <laughs> yes, yes, like, yeah. Like, especially especially in pass pro, because like yeah. in the run game, you're going to see a lot more pancakes. Yeah. You know? but, He'll get a couple. Actually, I think he'd even get more in the, in the pass game if he were to get any. Just because wide rush, you just put him on the ground and then kind of fall on him, you know, like a wide rush. But John uh, – Will Anderson doesn't get taken to the ground very often unless he yeah. wants to be on the ground. So uh, I love the optimism, John Wayne's Winchester, but uh, no, <laughs> no, he meant to type one and he just, you know, it got stuck and put 11 on there. Sure. Sure. Uh, uh, 10 day says how many Notre Dame players have played for the chargers come to Notre Dame. You'll at least get a shot with the chargers. They went through a stretch there with their, with their GM where they had like nine Notre Dame kids. Like, cause remember that one year, they had draft. They drafted Tillery and Isaac Rochelle like a couple years apart, mm-hmm. and then they drafted like Elohi Gilman and Drew Tranquil, yeah. and mm-hmm. then they had signed as non-drafted free agents. They draft. They signed like uh, was like Osmar Bilal, Dante Vaughn, and Tyler Newsom. You know, <laughs> and, and it was like, and then it, then if you want to get real technical, Jalen Guyton, who started yeah. his career at Notre Dame. So mm-hmm. it's like they had drafted Chris Watt, although it was a different regime. Drafted Chris Watt. They signed Manti Teo at one point in time. So it was like, yeah, they love some Notre Dame players, man. I don't know if the current regime is still that way, but yeah, when um, 
who was what's the name of their previous coach? Real good dude. He played running, but Anthony Lynn was there. Anthony Lynn, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that when he was there, and and I is it the same GM or do they do they have a new GM? They had I a young guy there. It's, it's the same. I think it's Smith, right? Last yeah. name Smith. Oh no, um, uh, no, it was last name with a T, I believe. Um I his, know this. Yeah, his uh AJ Smith, right? AJ no, Smith. he's not he was um he no, he's not he's not here. I'm gonna pull it up. Yeah, trying to see who because I don't think it's the same guy. Yeah, it is Tom Telesco. Yeah, Tom that's Tele- who it was. Uh, I mean, yeah, yeah. AJ Smith we, was before that. Yeah, yeah Tom Telesco's been there since 13. He's still the GM, but yeah, he loves drafting Notre Dame guys. Yeah, I just I wasn't should, sure when they did the coaching turnover if they also did a GM turnover or not. I I, I should have remembered that one because Telesco was actually high school or high school teammates or graduates in the same year with. Um, Brian Dayball, who is now okay. the Giants head coach. And that, that was yeah. like the big rumor for a while. I was like, oh, he's bringing over his high school yeah. teammate or something like that. But yeah, it didn't happen. How's Staley done so far in your view? He is – all right, so he was a Rams defensive coordinator. He's a really sharp defensive mind. I really like him as a defensive coordinator. I'm not sold as a head coach at all. Mm-hmm. He's very analytically driven. And uh, he a little does – too some, much? Yeah, man. There was I, I think it was the game last year. It was like fourth and – fourth down from like their, their own 30 yard line, fourth and three. And then he went for it and mm-hmm. they didn't get it. Okay. I'm just like, that's not good situational football. Yeah. I know analytics will tell me always go for it on fourth down, but like, we know that you shouldn't always go for mm-hmm. it on fourth down. Like it's yeah. not, it's, yeah, it's not apples to apples, but whatever. Yep. Michael S with a super chat. Michael says, Matt LaFleur, what was his history as a Notre Dame assistant recruiter, QB coach? Why did he leave so quick? Was he a bust? Uh, he was here for just a year. It was 2014, and um, I, I don't think he was a bust. I mean, I think, I think honestly, I think Everett Golson would have been worse if Matt Lafleur wasn't here because he developed some really bad habits under with working with George Whitfield. Some really bad habits, and I think Matt Lafleur helped with that. But the reality is, Matt Lafleur just was not invested in being Notre Dame. It was a one year stop for him, and he was moving on. I think he knew it from the beginning. There's some stories about him on the recruiting trail where he just – I heard this from a parent of a five-star kid at USC that, yeah, my kid and Rasheem Green were really interested in Notre Dame, and we had called and tried to set some up with Matt LaFleur, and he said, hey, I'll call you back with visit plans, and he's like, I never returned a call. He never called back. We tried to call. He never returned a call. And they probably still would have ended up at USC, but it's just it's just one of those things where it's like he, he was here for a year, and which is fine, but, you know, Kelly then let him – you know, Kelly acted like he was going to be here for longer. And so he trusted him as a recruiter and all this kind of stuff. And he just, he didn't, he wasn't invested, but as a quarterback's coach, I think he did a pretty good job, you know, with, with those guys. So, you know, we'll, we'll kind of see how, how, he's, how that goes, but yeah, I wasn't, he wasn't real locked in at Notre Dame. He, he was a sharp, he's an, he's a sharp yeah. offensive mind. He yeah. actually was, um, he was at the pro day. I remember I saw him mm-hmm. at the pro day for Notre Dame. So, yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Thank you for the super chat, Michael. Ian Johnson asks, as of now, do you think if Ohio State comes out in how Oklahoma State beat us, do you think if uh, press man, loaded box, quick tempo, that we can deal with it? I'll ask again after fall camp is over to see my any opinion changes. I don't think fall camp's going to change it a whole lot. I, I, I think that they're going to be better prepared to deal with it. Number one, you're going to have a, def- a, a defensive coordinator running the show that I think is a little bit more – prepared to make adjustments if things aren't working or they're beating with something. And that was the thing last year. So there just were no adjustments made until late in the game when it was too late. You know, Marcus Freeman eventually stepped in, but it was too late. He gave them 
maybe too much time. We've explained why we think that is talking to sources, but reality is he stepped in too late offensively. They tried making adjustments. There just wasn't anything that they could do about it because the offensive line and the receivers weren't prepared. So I, I think they'll be better prepared to deal with it. No question. And, and I think you have an off season. And the other thing too is your struggles in that game are going to then help you be prepared for what you're going to see then. Cause even though it wasn't Jim Knowles running that defense, it was still his defense that they were running to a degree, you know, with their own right. tendencies and all that. So you're going to see that. Plus Notre Dame had 12 full games to prepare 13 full games to evaluate his defense last year, getting ready for one game. So you're really preparing for the same defense for two games in a row. Uh, yeah. And you've got a lot of time in, in those two games to prepare and, and watch a lot of film. So I think they'll be prepared, be in much better position to deal with it to the point where it'll just come down to execution at that mm-hmm. point in time and, and which team executes better. But I don't think we're going to look back and be like, wow, you know, Notre Dame got out schemed, you know, they got out coached. It'll just be a situation where two really good teams played and Ohio State just played better and right. took advantage of matchups better or whatever the case may be. Because the concerning thing for Notre Dame is you can do things to take the outside jump balls out of the way, but the 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 Ohio State run game concerns me a lot more than the Oklahoma State run game did last year. Sure. And and now Oklahoma State had good numbers running the ball, but a lot of that was just the quarterback scrambling. I mean, that was that was the big thing from last year's game was just and was, just the quarterback scrambles were were killed Notre Dame. Wasn't Jalen Warren not playing in that game too? Right? Did he play against Notre uh, Dame? I can't remember. I think I think he played. I don't. I don't. I don't. I, I know he. Miss, I know he missed the big. Yeah, he had big nineteen. Yeah, he had nineteen carries for eighty-two yards. Gotcha. So I mean, that's what f- barely four yards a carry. Yeah, uh, 125 of their 234 yards were Spencer Saunders, Sanders. So it's mm-hmm. scrambles. Yeah. And and so, yeah, I mean, that's where a lot of their run game production came from. But, yeah, it, it that was a, a brutally bit bad performance by Notre Dame. And I'd be surprised and, to see him have two bad ones like that in a row. Yeah. I don't, I, and I don't anticipate C, um, C.J. Stroud running for 125 yards against Notre Dame. No. Personally. No. <laughs> no, that'd be a really bad sign. Really, I, I will really say, Brian – at least two out of these things I feel very confident with just from, I mean, it all, all spurns off of just better coaching at the wide receiver and offensive line positions for, for me. Right. It's because press man, I would be surprised if Notre Dame was as bad against press man this year mm-hmm. as they were last yeah. year. I think naturally they'll be better. And that will also help with the loaded box stuff, right? If you have right. wide receivers who can create instant separation, you're not going to be able to load the box quite as well, quite as easily as you did last year. And that's on top of, Tyler Buckner being the run threat that he right. is, right? Like that's going to loosen up some boxes for you as right. well. So I agree. Yep. I think the tempo is the thing that I'm more concerned about, to be honest with you. Like I do. Will they adjust well to that? That's the bigger yeah. concern that I have. Sure. Tom Flavin says, Brian emphasizes the importance of dudes being dudes to succeed. You're turning me into like Steve Adazio there, Tom. Uh, that was his expression. Dudes being dudes. You remember that when he was a BC, he would say that mm-hmm. Just dudes mm-hmm. being dudes. Uh, apart from recruiting dudes, how are they developed in a football program? That's a really good question, Tom. Uh, it's a lot of different things. Uh, it's obviously the strength conditioning program is a big part of it. So that way you're maximizing a player's physical potential. Uh, there comes uh, the point where like, do you recruit kids that fit the scheme that you'd like to run? Cause that does matter. You don't want to take a kid who, you know, if you're taking a kid whose game doesn't fit your scheme and then you're you know, kind of tailoring the two things, it, it's not as simple as like, we'll just, fit the scheme around them. Well, what if the other 10 guys don't fit the scheme that works for that kid, right? So there's got to be some recruiting the right kind of kids to it. Assuming that they're doing that, it's then 
you know, developing the technique, making kids know how to play the game, you know, physically how to play the game, how to line up, how to, you know, I mean, what makes Harry Heastand so great, Ryan? It's not, uh, you know, oh, he's like, he's got these really crazy complex run schemes and nobody knows how to play it. No, it's his guys are fundamentally sound, tough, and physical. That comes down to teaching technique. That comes down to mindset. And it comes down to your practice is designed in a way to make sure you're getting, you're maximizing the opportunities to teach the things that you emphasize as a football coach. And I think the best teams in the country are those that, that understand that technique and talent is going to trump scheme without those two things. Yeah. And Alabama won, see, 9, 11, 12, 15. They won 17. Five of their titles and of their six titles, in my opinion, were won with very mediocre offenses in a lot of different ways, meaning they weren't the high-octane 40-plus points per game, mediocre relative to what we see now. Alabama won titles where they were barely scoring more than what Notre Dame scored in 15 or 19 and 21. But what they were on offense was really efficient, well-coached, physical, and then they were the same way on defense. And I think that gets over – I actually think Alabama has been a, has not been coached as well last four or five years compared to where they were early because I think their talent has actually been better in recent years athletically. They're in more high-octane offenses. They score a lot more points, but they're not winning as much as they did early in his career. I and mean, they won three titles in four years yep. at one point in time during his, during his career. So – you know, I, I don't think they're as fundamentally sound as they've been in the past. But when they were really rolling from like 09 to 15, I thought they were a really fundamentally sound team, really mm-hmm. fundamentally sound team. And yeah. I think that is part of it, too. And then there's things like there's the mental part of the game, you know, and it's not just learning the system. It's it's the deep mental, the psyche aspect of it. You know, are you do you have guys ready to handle adversity. I mean, if you ever talk to like a, you know, Navy SEAL and they've teams will bring in Navy SEALs. Well, the whole point is of, of that is big training to be a SEAL is they try to break your will, your spirit, your psyche. Mm-hmm. You're not trying to do that to football players, but what you are trying to do is find ways that you can put them in, in, in situations in the classroom in the meeting room on the football field in the weight room where you are pushing them past the point that they think they're capable of getting to and that you put them in stressful situations that they then have to show a, a level of uh, ability to overcome adversity. Like those are the things that the great coaches do. That's why Lou Holtz always played those mind games with players. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the, his players say like, I didn't understand why he was, he did that stuff when I was going through it. But now looking back as an adult, you're like, Oh, I see what he's trying to do. Like yeah. that's why we were always tougher. You know, that's why we were always more physical than the other teams. That's why we never quit. That's why we were this. That's why we were that because, oh, I get it now. That's why Coach did that because there was nothing that they could throw us on Saturday, any type of adversity that we weren't going to be prepared for. And I think those are the the different aspects that go into developing a player, each individual player, and then those players make up the program. Yeah. And I think the biggest thing that hurt has hurt Notre Dame at quarterback, for example, is I think that they have not put the quarterbacks in position to thrive mentally. Mm-hmm. And I'm not even talking about executing the offense. I'm just talking about handling just every aspect of it. Like when your biggest, like when your head coach acts the way that Brian Kelly acted towards quarterbacks so often that it was just, it was like he they'd come off the field and Brian Kelly's telling him something. 
and then they'd go talk to the quarterback coach and he'd tell them something. And then they'd get on the phone to go talk to the offensive coordinator and he told them something. And it was like two or different, three or different things that the quarterback was being told. Too many voices. Yeah. Way too many. Yeah. And then when your head yeah. coach doesn't know what they're talking about and he says something to the quarterback and the OC's like, no, that's not what we're doing. That's going to create problems. I think there's like the players are not allowed to have the confidence in themselves or the system around them to play to their peak. Cause that's the final piece is there's football as much as any sport, if not more, it's like, I, I I don't like comparing it to the military a lot because that's war. That's life and death. And football is not life and death, but sure. there's one aspect of it that I, that there's a lot of aspects that I think do carry over in regard to the importance of the team. And you talk to anybody that served overseas and I'm, and I'm giving you my experience. I had a grandfather fought in world war two, you know, one, like I got his record, you know, fought in the, you know, in the Battle of the Bulge and, and earned different honors and things like that. I've uh, relatives served in Iraq and people in our chat that, that I know that served in the military that have fought overseas, right? And they'll tell you, like, when you're in it, it's about the man next to you. It's, 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 hey, I got to trust him. I got to, because my life is in his hands, his life is in my hands, and we've got to work as a team. Because if one person in that team kind of goes off script, that affects all of us. I think football is very much like that. And if you don't have trust in in your commanders, right? If if you don't have trust that hey, this commander, like you ever study George Patton? It's fascinating. Like the the loyalty and the trust that his troops showed in him. He could say, go do this really bizarre thing, and they would do it and just know that it was going to work because they trusted the old man, right? Yeah. Right. And 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 sometimes maybe it wasn't the best strategy, but they carried it out as if they just knew and it would work. And football is that way as well. You got to trust the man next to you. That's cultivated through your training. That's cultivated mm-hmm. through the the mental and physical deals that you go through in practice and preparation, getting up at, or, you know before the sun's up and you're done when the sun's down, you know, and, and, and all those type of things. But then also trusting your your captains, your generals, your lieutenants, who are the quarterback coach, the receivers coach, the offensive coordinator, the head coach. And if there's not faith in all aspects of that, you're not going to be the best team you can be. Right. And I think that's the part that I think has been missing a lot for Notre Dame in recent seasons. So I hope that that's answers fair. that question. Anything you'd like to add to that, uh, Ryan? No, I was just, I was just going to say for the coaching aspect of everything, I love that you're kind of like talking about cultivating the mental side and the physical mm-hmm. side equally. But I also think that sometimes coaches can kind of get in their own way and not letting dudes be dudes, right? Like you have mm-hmm. to really, I think to be a great coach, you also need to understand a player's strengths mm-hmm. fully, right? And ask him to do things that not only are they comfortable with, but that they excel at, right? Like, mm-hmm. so don't hamstring a player. Don't try to fit a square peg into a round hole Get out of your way and let dudes be dudes because there mm-hmm. might be some things that they do that maybe aren't even structurally the most sound thing sometimes. But like it's like having a great safety that you know is a little bit of a freelancer, and but you're trying to be like, nope, you need to do this and that, and that's all you do, and you're actually hamstringing them. Like you're you're trying you're limiting the impact that he can do in that regard, right? So I mean, to your point, I think that the coaching side is as important as just the athlete in general. Right. It's ability to take what they do well and allow them to do it. Don't get in your own way when you're a coach sometimes. Yep. Really good question, Tom. Really good question. John A1 with a question. John asks, how does Aldrich estimate compared to Willis McGahee? Similar frame, right? Both have good feet and flexibility and speed to beat linebackers to the edge. I think McGahee had a better initial burst. And then John had a little bit more to that. Let me get to the rest of his comment here if I can find it. 
I do not see the rest of his comment. He said a little bit more burst. I don't see what else John added to that. But there were some people in the chat saying, like, if not for that devastating injury he suffered against Ohio State in the in the championship game, that he'd had a better career. I still can't believe that he came back and even played in the NFL after yeah. that injury. But he yeah, was, he, he was, was he was a good player. He was still a first round pick after that too, yeah. man. And he, he was a good player early yeah. on, you know, with the with the Bills, and then he went to the Ravens, and he was he was a pretty good player still. Um, yeah. But that's an interesting comp, John, because I do agree that from a body type perspective, pretty similar looking athletes. I would agree with you, though. I, I think that Willis had a little more vertical burst, especially mm-hmm. early on in reps. Like Willis McGahee before that injury, especially, and even into his NFL career as he got like more healthy, my guy could move. He had 4,000-yard seasons in the NFL. That's, yeah. that's nuts for the when you consider the injury he sustained. Oh, that injury yeah. was gruesome, man. It was absolutely gruesome. I made my wife watch that one time, Brian, like when we first met, and she's like, don't ever make me watch that again in my mm-hmm. entire life. I'm like, yeah, yeah. It, was, it was gruesome, man, but – I mean, he was a special athlete at Miami and a really good, yeah. still a really good NFL player for what he was dealt. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, McGahee, I mean, similar traits, a lot of similar traits, but yes, it just some guys are very similar traits wise. Other guys just he's just better at those traits. And as of right now, that's what we see from Wilson McGahee. Aldrich yes. has to show that, but he's a very good football player. Mm-hmm. John A. One also says, "Why does Riley Mills project better on the?" Out-? This is a really good question. Why does Riley Mills project better on the outside? Does he play with strong hands? Is there anything you can point to as to why? Now that he's put on 30 pounds since arriving, could he be better inside now? Take first crack at that. Yeah, I think he could be, John, I think that he could be a substantial, productive player at either spot, if I'm being honest. I What I think that, why I think it's better for Riley is I think Riley is more of a block defeater with his flexibility and ability to kind of contort his body in different ways. I don't think he's the most, I think he's a power, I think he has powerful hands, but I think it's different when you're working inside trying to work against multiple blocks and combos and that type of thing. Right. So I think he's more of a slipper. So like if he's a three tech and you're just asking him to purely, you know, just shoot one gap and to just use his flexibility in that regard. Mm-hmm. I think he could be a really good player in that department. But I think for me, Brian, it's, I think his style is just a little more finesse than it is aggressive, just a little bit. So I think that it's working outside in might be a better option for him than inside out. I would disagree with the notion of it being finesse. Mm-hmm. I would say, I think we're probably saying the same thing. I would say it differently. Just because okay. when I hear finesse, I just, I don't want to hear that about an alignment. I think Riley's style and just is I want to get around you as opposed to standing there. I want to be going forward. And I think there comes a point in time too, Ryan, where defensive linemen are a lot like offensive linemen. Some guys are just more comfortable in space. Some guys are just more comfortable in short areas. Riley's a really long athlete. Yes. And I don't think he's really comfortable inside as much where everything is happening so quickly. Mm-hmm. and really long athlete and not just long as an arm length because Jason Adam Mule, I think has some pretty long arms but also long in that he's really high cut mm-hmm. and I think that part of his body type just fits better out at least for him and he's more comfortable outside I think he's a guy that also just again likes to use his hands to do moves and and I think he's just more comfortable on the edge I also think his athleticism fits there I think the thing that when I look at Riley Mills I, I say this about all types of different positions. Stop talking to me about what a guy's size is. Talk to me about can he play at that size? Mm-hmm. Well, this guy's you know this guy's going to outgrow the linebacker. What does that mean? Well, he's going to be 250 pounds. So is Leo Chanel. 
Right. That guy was a freaking linebacker. You know what I mean? Like the monster. Uh, yeah. Right. It, it's not about outgrowing it. Are you unless the outgrowing also comes with a loss of athletic talent, right? Sure. Well, that guy's gonna be 225 pounds. He's gonna outgrow safety. Not necessarily. Can he still move? Can he still run? Can he still change direction the same way he did before? Then okay, then he's not gonna outgrow it. And I think that's the thing is we we look at just wait and say, okay, 6'5, 293, that's an inside guy. That's not how he plays, though. I think he just plays. I think the, his cut, I think his comfort level, I think the things he likes to do that he's comfortable with with his own game are things that that progress to me or project to me more as an outside guy. And I think he could be a good inside player. Mm-hmm. But I just feel like what we've seen of him, he just looks more comfortable outside. So I don't think there's a wrong answer on where he plays from a skill set standpoint. I think part of it is just, Where's he most comfortable? We see this at receiver, Ryan. Guys mm-hmm. that maybe are built like outside guys just seem more comfortable inside. Guys that are seem like they should should be inside guys because of their size are really good outside because they're just more comfortable out there. Right. And, you know, like Steve Smith is, like body type-wise, is the prototype slot receiver. Mm-hmm. Steve Smith's an outside receiver. Why? Because he just – his game fits that. Even though his body doesn't fit it, his game fit it. Antonio right. Brown played outside right. mostly too. Yeah. yeah. Who's yeah. again, another guy that's not like built like your typical, you know, your stereotypical outside receiver. Right. Does T.Y. Hilton play? Did he play a lot outside or was he more he, of a slot he, guy? No, no. He's more an outside guy because they yeah. like to stretch it vertically. Cause he's him, another yeah. small guy that you would think it, but his game projects outside. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think those, that's the same. It's the same thing with, with defensive linemen, but John, great question. And by the way, I just noticed your avatar's got the IB thing on the logo. That's flipping awesome, man. Oh, I didn't I even that. see that. Yeah, that's I just awesome. noticed that. I was like, what is that? That's awesome. I love that. Love that. Tommy Gunn says, B, Ryan, I decided to start my uh, Trekkie journey and just finished Star Wars Episode Five. Which movie or spinoff is your favorite? Can you uh, rank how you like them? Is this just of the Star Treks? The Star I, Wars? I, so... He said he started his Trekkie journey and just finished episode. Wait, so are we doing Star Trek and Star Wars together? Is that what's happening? I have no idea. Isn't this a conversation that you and Vince had? Yeah, we're talking a lot about Star Wars. We're talking a lot about Star Wars. Yeah, I never watched Star Trek, so I couldn't. I I, I didn't didn't, didn't watch Star Trek either. My my brother-in-law actually makes fun of me because he says Star Trek is better than Star Wars. And I say that Star Wars is better, even though I've never actually seen Star Trek. But it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I wasn't a big fan of Star Trek, but it just I'll tell you what I did like the new Star Treks with Chris Pine. I'm not gonna lie to you. I did. I did like those. Never, I liked those better saw. than the previous ones. Mm. But because um, I watched the Star Treks when I was younger, because my dad, we would go to the movies and watch the movies. I didn't watch the TV series. Yeah. But uh, I mean, obviously, the, the originals are great. Mm-hmm. Uh, of the three, the, the prequels kind of thing. I, I thought those were bad. All Although, of them. I did. I didn't like any of them. Although I thought I thought Qui Gon Jinn was a bad dude. Like I, Liam Neeson rocked that character, man. I like, love I, Liam Neeson, yeah. man. But uh, overall, they just were bad. Um, good, great graphics, right? And the storylines were just kind of. And Hayden Christensen is just. just you know and Natalie, no, not in that role. Uh, and then uh, Hayden, the the worst one, Natalie Portman's like she just like she was just like way over to, to I, too dramatic and just. Like, I didn't love her. You and McGregor's yeah. my guy though. Yes, he he was it, that the Obi Wan could like there were characters I liked, sure, but the movies I didn't like. I liked Qui Gon Jinn. I liked Ob- I liked Ewan McGregor's Obi Wan Kenobi, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, just some of the stuff on there was just like this is really lame. What know? was uh? What's your opinion on George R. Banks? Are you a fan? Oh God, no. That whole that whole thing was just so dumb. Like, you know, 
the best yeah. fan theory I've ever saw is I'm not trying to spoil anything if you haven't seen the the previous the the newest three like the three after yeah. the originals. So there was a fan theory that the the one bad guy in the new sequence was uh, actually Jar Jar Binks resurrected. Or something. Oh, the the <laughs> Snape guy or whatever it yeah, was. Yeah, yeah, whatever. A Snook or Snook, whatever. Yeah, yeah, something yeah, like yeah, that. Snook, yeah. right? Snook, something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. General Snook. Someone said that that yeah. was going to be Jar Jar Binks in the end, which okay. would have been great. Whatever. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> the new ones were good. You know, they were good. They weren't bad. The, they I, were great. Liked, they were good. I, the first couple liked, were better. I like the first one and then the last yeah. two. They lost me. Yeah. They lost me on the last two. Yeah. Yeah. Just like that whole weird thing between Ray and Han Kylo Solo's Ren. kid, Kyler Ren, yeah. was just kind of yeah. weird and just like yeah. forced. Uh, but the action also, was good. Yeah. I also really like Adam Driver as an actor, but I hated yeah. him as Kylo Ren. Like, he's yeah. not good. Yeah. 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 It wasn't his fault. They just made that character so bad. Like, they did. Just, and the, yeah. and the, I didn't think the writing on the last two was very good, to be honest with you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, so it was, yeah, it was kind of weird. And didn't, uh, didn't Carrie Fisher die before the last one? Yes. Right. Then she, okay. Cause she was she supposed to be in the last one, right? She it was just, still in it. They like messed, you know, they made it yeah. that way or whatever, but yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. But I mean, she was supposed to have a bigger role in the last yes. one, I think, yep. but just some of the character development was really bad in the last two. And, and they just like, there were storylines that started, but they didn't, didn't finish. Like I just thought the first three, it was all woven together so well. Yeah. And I just never felt the, like I actually think the story the story arc was more consistent in the prequels than it was in the last three. I just mm-hmm. think the acting, the characters were better in the last three, in my opinion. Yeah, it was. I was also let down by a lot of like the character developments. I would agree on like the last three yeah. because like I, I I was like I, after the first one, I was like, man, I really am so interested to see what Ray's origin are. And then I right. was just like, at the end, I'm just like, oh, okay. I right. Wasn't, right. Yeah. Okay, cool. They never took it to where I thought they were going to take it. Right. Ever. Yeah. And, they and had I, so I, many possibilities, man. Yeah, Endless possibilities. Yeah, they got yeah. lazy with it. And I didn't love how they had um, I just didn't love Luke's character, Luke Skywalker's character in the last uh, they yeah. They turned him from a a hero into a dud. Very a whiny little yes. Yeah. 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 Yep. 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 Very and, and it's hard to it's hard to have you know sequels. That's that's what I found so fascinating about the Lord of the Rings mm-hmm. and why I will not watch the Rings of Power that just came out on Prime or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Because that's the one series and, and there's been a few, but that's to me the best one ever. That and I'll and I'll say the Harry Potters I thought really did a good job too. They did a good job getting yeah. better. Mm-hmm. But the Lord of the Rings got better every time. Mm-hmm. And the first one was good. It's a little long, but they were, they purposely was long because they did so much good character development in the yes. first one. Yep. And then it just let the storylines and the action were really good in the last two. So I, I thought that was one of the few that actually got better. It, it's uh, so easy to tell if a movie's going to be good or not for me nowadays because if it's below two hours i'm like that's not going to have enough character development yeah. like every time the the suit they try to do the suicide squad thing right and i'm just like oh that sounds that sounds cool in theory like right. i would like that and then i'm like oh it's an hour and 50 minutes like it's have you ever seen them remake a movie more times with different characters than in a short period of time than suicide squad like don't they normally like wait 20 years to redo a movie with different characters man they just haven't like, done it well man they yeah. just can't do it it's, yeah, it's, it's just, like it's like the incredible hulk like they really just haven't done it well they have not know? done the the standalone hulk very well at all yes, and then they wasted him in, in endgame was completely wasted in endgame uh, like they the made prof- him lame professor, professor hulk or oh yeah. yeah they made him yeah. so lame in endgame 
They like, did. They did. Yeah. So lame. When he, when he couldn't, like, yeah, yeah, it wasn't great. Yeah, it wasn't great. Lame. I'll say another, see, um, I'll say another uh, series of movies that I thought got at least the same, but maybe better. Toy Story was an awesome series of movies. Awesome series. Yes. Okay. I know this because I've been watching it with Juliet the last okay, two Okay, there you go. So. There you go. Fantastic, the, like man. The, the original, like the old ones, like yeah. the Tom Hanks. Toy Story, and... Toy Story yeah, 1. Toy Story, cool. uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Toy Story 4 cool. wasn't the best, but the first three were fantastic. Awesome. Milton Fan 15 says, uh, does Tommy Reese deserve most of the blame for lack of quarterback development and so many quarterbacks transferring in past years, or does BK? Uh, he deserves some for the transfers. And the only transfer I would give him some blame for is Phil Dracovic. Mm-hmm. But I also kind of give him a little bit of a pass because that was his first year as a full-time coach. Marie's a GA the year before, even though he's a full-time guy. Um, I think Tommy has learned some things since then. Brendan Clark transferred because he was bearing on the depth chart. I don't fault yeah. Tommy Reese for that. I mean, that's just the reality of it. But I think one of the misconceptions is I actually think Coach Reese did a good job with Ian Book and Jack Cohn, to be honest yep. with you. I think there was not a lot Tommy Reese could do to make Ian Book any better than he was. I just – I don't think Ian had it in him. Sean Payton couldn't get it out of him. I mean, you know, Sean Payton couldn't get him to throw the ball down the field either. And if Sean Payton can't do it, I'm not going to hold 28-year-old Tommy Reese to that, you know, say – I, I think he got – because I think what he did a good job of is he put – he did a good job of of getting Ian in situations where he just okay. I know this is who he is, and and one thing I think Coach Long, Coach Long in 2019 kept trying to get Ian back to being the guy he was in 2018, and it just never happened. I think when Coach Reese took over in 2020, and I don't blame Coach Long for that because again we've seen him do it. Why can't he get back to it? And and I think a lot of that was with Brian Kelly and just the way that Brian Kelly handled Ian and coached Ian. And I just don't think, you know, then getting rid of Chip Long and all it was all, all types of mess that I think were more about Brian Kelly. I think what Tommy Reese did a good job of in 2020 is I know who Ian is. I'm not going to ask him to do things that I know he won't do. I'm not going to keep calling a bunch of post routes and hoping he'll finally throw it, you know, and what's the one post route that he hit. It was an inside post route against Clemson to Avery Davis. Mm-hmm. And, and even there were still times where, you know, Tommy still didn't pull the trigger when he should have, but, I think for the most part, he did a good job of getting the most out of Tommy Reese or out of Ian Book. And the same thing with Jack Cohn is, you know, I thought Jack did a nice job of uh, adapting to the shotgun as the season went on last year and and finished the season on a pretty hot note. And once the te- once he got some semblance of mediocre offensive line play, and again, a lot of it had to do with the, the fact they're playing bad D lines, Jack was really good. Mm-hmm. I mean, really good. I mean, Jack's numbers down the stretch were really impressive. And if you if you expand him over the course of a whole season, he would have had a really impressive season last year. And and so I I, I think Coach Reese gets a lot of credit for that. I mean, you know, again, guy completed sixty five point five percent of his passes. You know, starting with the the come, he came off the bench, did a great job, or got benched, and came back off the bench against Virginia Tech, let him do victory, and he kind of woke up after that. He was seventy one point four percent the next week. 66.7 against North Carolina with a couple drops, bad drops, 79.3 against Navy, 75% against Virginia and Georgia Tech, 74.3% against Stanford, 55.9 against Oklahoma State with several drops, but he threw for 509 yards. Yeah. In his last three games, he threw for 285, 345, and 509 and threw nine touchdowns in three games. So I think that's the Jack Cone that we always thought we were going to get. And, and, and we saw it against Florida State too. It's just – 
the stuff in between, I, you know, to me, that wasn't on Jack Cohn. That was more about what was around him. And I think Tommy did a good job taking a guy who had always been an under center play action pass quarterback and turning him into a shotgun quarterback where he's got to get rid of the ball quickly. I thought he did a pretty nice job of evolving him. Now, will he be able to do that with Tyler Buckner? That's ultimately what he's going to be judged on. Yeah. So uh, I just think most of those issues had to do with BK because as we've talked about this before, there's way too many voices there. And one of those loudest voices that everybody had to listen to was not always on top of what they were trying to do offensively. Mm -hmm. And that creates big problems. That's gone now. And Marcus Freeman has made clear, like when I talk to the quarterback, it's in a completely different type of talking. It's about him being the leader. It's about him being, you know, that type of thing. Hey, you know, encouragement, stuff like that. It's not, hey, man, you should have hit this route on this play. It's like, well, that's not the read, coach. You know, and, and you know, that, that kind of stuff's not going to be happening with Marcus Freeman. I don't believe based on what he has said and what we've been told. What's so, but at this point in time, that's why this year is going to be so important. Because you can't use Brian Kelly as an excuse anymore. It's now on Tommy, and that's also partly why I'm optimistic about how things are going to go this year. Love it. So uh, here we go. Uh, Omar Austin kind of asking a question about our original topic. Is the Harbor, Nicholas Harbor kid from Maryland the freakiest 2023 recruit? And it's not even close. It's not even close, Omar. The kid is – if you haven't watched Nicholas Harbor, he's a very raw football player. But my man is 6'5", 220, 10, 10 to 800 meter, I think. So he is, he's flying, sub 21 in the 200. Like this kid, if he wanted to just maintain this weight or even cut a little bit of weight, he probably mm-hmm. could be an Olympic runner. Like that's what type of player he is. But he's probably going to continue to get bigger, whether he's a tight end at the next level, wide receiver, defensive ends, linebacker, whatever he ends up playing. Yes, he is a freaky, freaky athlete, no doubt. So on the message board later today, I'm going to be dropping my top 100 for the year. And uh, Ryan and I have kind of gone over and I've made a couple changes on it based on some of the conversations we've had. I've got Harbor number six. And that could be considered high because of how raw he is. But he's so athletic that he doesn't have to be the most fundamentally sound player. And he can do he could play safety. I mean, that's how athletic he's at. He's he'd be at the most athletic safety in the country. He's built like a defensive end. I mean, he is a freak. And if it wasn't for him, we people would be talking a lot more about Samuel Pemba being a freak. But mm-hmm. because Samuel Pemba just can't, is not in the same league as Nicholas Harbor, because nobody is, he is without question the biggest freak in this class. There's there's three guys that just, all, when I think of this class, four guys off the top of my head are just freaky athletically. And Nicholas Harbor's one, mm-hmm. Keon Keeley's two, Caleb Downs is one, and then Zachariah Branch, the kid going to USC, is another. Kid's he is a yeah. crazy fast, explosive kid. Mm-hmm. So, and he he will be my uh, my my number two receiver in the class, and he's a top ten guy as well. So, just a little teaser you, on that one. You want to talk about generational type of athletes, though? I mean, who's who's been more impressive to come out of high school since, uh, than Nicholas Harbor in recent memory? Like that kid. I mean. 6'5", 220 with 10, 200 meter speed. Yeah. Like that is yeah. nuts, man. That is, insane. I'd be fired up about that. If it was a five foot, 10, 175 pound guy. Right. Right. Cause you're like, wow, yep. there's my deep threat for the next X amount of years. Like it's insane, man. Yeah. I, 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 
I got I got a tip on him from a guy that does like a has like an analytics company. He's like, oh, you need to watch this kid. Like before mm-hmm. he even like blew up, blew up. And I'm like, what the heck, man? Like I mm-hmm. this kid was I mean, he's literally one of those kids that could be a number one overall pick one day if he puts mm-hmm. it together. Like he's that type of athlete. It's silly, silly type of athlete. Let's go to Josh Buffo, the motivational business banker. Would Tony Rice be in your top five Notre Dame players of all time based on his natty? And his record against ranked teams in a span of two years, uh, I would uh, what I would I would what say you guys? Top five Notre Dame players of all time. So again, I'm going to always preface this: I will never do a top five Notre Dame players of all time. I, I can't. I never saw Ross Browner play. I never saw mm-hmm. Luther Bradley. I never saw Leon Hart. I never saw Paul Harning. I never saw John Hart Hewitt. Uh, I never saw Angelo Bertelli. I never saw George Gipp. I cannot possibly because then I'm just comparing statistics which is also unfair because it's different eras. So I will only ever give a list of guys from my lifetime. And in my lifetime, yeah, Tony Rice is in my top five. No, no, no doubt about it. Just because it's not just that he was a winner. Cause again, that can be inflated. You know, you're all part of a good team, but he was a key part in a lot of those wins. Mm. Number one. And he was a dynamic player that you had to always be prepared for. You couldn't put your emphasis on Ricky Waters and Rocket Ismail and these other guys because you, if you did, he would burn you. And we saw that against USC. They were so worried about the pitch that allowed Tony to just kind of sneak in and just rip off an option run for a big play. And he was always best in the big games. I mean, he was great in the big games. And I was watching the other day. I was watching uh, the, the Orange Bowl against Colorado that last year, where they played number one Colorado. And beat him 21 to six. And he was just so dynamic and you just had to handle him. His numbers weren't sexy, but he was a dynamic player. The funny thing is two of the five of my top five played together and that's rocket and, and, and Tony rice. So do you you know who your top five would definitely be? Do you have it? Do you have it like off the top of my head? And again, I I reserve the right to go back and and change it. So these are, these are not the top, top five most talented players, but just the best. Sure. And I kind of go from like 88 to now. Okay. You know, I, I think you have to go Tony Rice and Rocket Ismail for me. Okay. Uh, Bryant Young, Quentin okay. Nelson, yeah. and Manti Teo are my five. Yeah, that's going to be my five. Yeah. And I mean, I'm leaving off some stars. I'm leaving off Jalen Todd Light. I mean, I'm, well, yeah. see, Jalen Smith was the most physically gifted player, but Jalen Smith wasn't a wasn't allowed to be the player he could have been. Right. That's the difference. Like, if he would have played for Mike Elkler or Clark Lee, he's number one on my list. Because sure. he was still pretty good. It's just he was not allowed to fully maximize his talent at Notre That's Dame. Fair. So That's I fair. can't look at him and say, I mean, the guy never had as many tackles for loss in the season as Osmar Bilal. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's not his fault, but that's what I'm judging on, right? And mm-hmm. so he's not in, he's he's number one if we're talking about who's the most talented offensive you know, players. You know, I'm leaving off Aaron Taylor. I'm leaving off Reggie Brooks. I'm leaving off Jerome Bettis. Right. You know, right. now. Jerome became a great player and Jerome was really good, but I mean, Jerome wasn't even the leading rusher on his team in his <laughs> right. last year. Reggie Brooks was, you know? And so it's a, it's a very subjective list. You could, I mean, I, did I say Brady Quinn? I didn't even say Brady no. Quinn on my list. No. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so Brady, it just, there's a lot of guys. Jeff Samars is not on that list. Tyler Eifert's not on that list. Ronnie Stanley's not on that list. I mean, there's some great players not on that list which is kind of what makes it fun. But, yeah, those would be my five. So Tony Rice, Rocket Ismail, Bryant Young, Quentin Nelson, and uh, Manti Teo were my five. So Love it. Love be it. curious what some other people kind of think were were that. Like Justin, somebody said Justin Tuck. 
he had one good year. I mean, really, you know what I mean? Like yeah. he was kind of a rotational guy. I'll say this to Lance's comment about Justin Tuck. If Justin Tuck would have come back in 05, there's a good chance he's on that list. Yeah. Because that team would have, I still say that that team could have played for a title if Justin Tuck would have come back. Mm-hmm. They'd have beat USC because you'd have had him rushing off the edge instead of, instead of Ronald Talley against <laughs> on fourth and nine. You know what I mean? So he would, uh, he would, he was a great player. He sure was. Somebody said Tim Brown. I didn't really know. T- I was 10 and 88. That was really the first year that I had a full recollection of, of that team. And the reason a lot of the guys I talk about from the 88 team are guys that also played in 89 and 90, you know, like Tony Rice and then Rocket and Ricky Waters. I don't talk as much about Frank Stams or Wes Pritchett or guys like that because I didn't I didn't see them as much in, as I was kind of forming that. So, like, Tim Brown, I don't really remember him as much in college. Mm-hmm. So I can't say him. Now, if you're just going to talk about like recognition and greatness, sure. I'm sure there's a lot of people in the top five. It's just, that was just slightly before my time. There's also a lot more film available of the 88 and 89 team yeah. that I've been able to go back and watch. There's not as much of it of the 87 team to be able to look at Tim Brown and 86 and 87 are really good. He just obviously won the Heisman in 87. So that's why Tim Brown's not on my list. I just haven't seen enough of him. Uh, to mm-hmm. be able to do that. And, and and Brady Quinn could potentially be on that list, but Brady had two pretty bad years. Again, not his fault. He had yeah. two pretty bad years, which kind of balances it. And as great as he was, like to me, Bryant Young was just a phenomenal player his whole career. You know, yeah. um, every, but, every yeah. step, every step of the way, yeah. <laughs> he went to the Hall of yeah. Fame. If know, somebody's so. going to put Brady Quinn on the list, I'm not arguing with you. I'm sure. not, if you want to put Jerome Bettis on the list, I'm not arguing with you. If you want to put Reggie Brooks in the list because you thought his one year was good enough, I'm not going to argue with you. There's other there's you know there's guys you could put on the list that you, I mean I've had people argue that Julius Jones should be on the list. I don't I mean, he had a great single season, but he's not on my list. I mean there's a lot of Samarja. I mean there's a Golden Tate had crazy numbers at Notre Dame. There, Michael Floyd, you know, finished his career owning every single receiving record at Notre Dame. Yep. You know, there's a lot of guys you could have on the list, but that's what makes it fun. But that's the era I grew up in. Is I, I left Todd Light off the list. Now he's probably my top five of favorite players, but mm-hmm. five best, you know, again, it just, I would have loved to seen Todd light play in the modern era. I think his numbers in the modern era would be nuts. Mm-hmm. Like I think, I think they'd be absolutely nuts. And did you give your five Ryan? I did not. So I'm in the same boat as you where my early recollection is like late nineties, early two mm-hmm. thousands. So like, I can't, I, I'm not going to use any like the early nineties players as well. Mm-hmm. Right. So top five that I remember vividly would be some combination of Quentin Nelson, Brady Quinn, Justin Tuck, Jeff Samarja and Monty no man Yeah. Monty yeah. yeah. He'd be, a, he'd yeah. be number five. Well, he would, he would be in the top five. He'd probably be higher yeah. than five, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, the guy's a linebacker that finished second in the Heisman Trophy. And that was his least productive year from a tackle standpoint at Notre Dame. I know. I know. But, you know, you seven, know? Inter- seven interceptions right. will do that right. for you. Oh, he was great that year. It just yeah. it just goes to show how how productive he was in previous years. I mean, yeah. he had 113 tackles that year and uh, had five and a half tackles for loss, one and a half sacks, seven interceptions. 2011, he had 128 tackles, 13 and a half tackles for loss and five sacks. 2010, yep. he had 129 tackles, eight and a half tackles for loss. Uh, and a sack. And then as a true freshman, he had 63 tackles and five and a half tackles for loss. Manti was an incredible player at Notre Dame. He just played on some bad teams at times until his last year. And then a lot of people I still think hold against him sort of, he was not good against Alabama. And then the whole 
thing with the friend yeah. Yeah, yeah which yeah. you know what i th- look it, it is what it is it does not take away from the player he was mm-hmm. you know he was phenomenal he was a phenomenal player at notre dame sure was Jonathan Garbick, do you guys think NFL and I'm gonna let you answer this, Ryan. Do you guys think yep. NFL and NCAA recruit that draft put too much emphasis on freak athletes, even though they might not actually be the best football players? NFL, especially, in my opinion. At times, yeah, Jonathan. I mean, it happens. That's why people miss in the draft space, right? Like there's some players who are not tremendous athletes who are just really good football players, and you can't quantify them with a 40 time or a three cone or whatever it might be. But I'll also say that part of projecting for NFL and recruiting side of things is to project what a player can be right. And to project Mm -hmm. what a player can be traits are important, right? The physical side of the game does matter. So I think it's a steady balance, but yes, there are some times where you overvalue players that are pure athletes because Mm -hmm. you think that you can get the most out of them, but they're not natural football players. It absolutely can happen, but they're, it's a, it's a very, Right. It's a it's a tough balancing act, if we're being completely honest. Well, and that's what we kind of we talked about Nicholas Harbor earlier, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you're talking about from a recruiting standpoint, I am gonna give more benefit of the doubt to the traits with a high school kid than if I was an NFL team. Because right. I think by the time a guy's going to the draft, you kind of know what kind of player he is. And if he hasn't figured out how to play football by then, it, you know, like the, the perfect example on a, you know, growing up it was always Mike Mamula, right? <laughs> but I think the yeah. better example in recent years is the kid from UConn that went in the second round. He was a, uh, OB, not a very OB good football player at all. Yeah. yeah. He was yeah. not a good football player. But he goes in the second round. Why? Because he had insane combine numbers. Yes. Because, hey, we can turn teach him how to play football. That's true of a 17-year-old like Nicholas Harbour, who sure. shows some instincts as a football player. He's fundamentally unsound because he plays all over the place. But he shows mm-hmm. instincts as a football player. That's the difference. It's not just athletic. And, and I think that's a trait. And I think the, the, the trait that I think people miss on most from a recruiting standpoint is size. And we've talked about this, Ryan. I think people put way too much on big dominant high school players. Yeah. And, and overlook bad feet, stiff hips, things like that, because man, he's how powerful he's, he's going against 225 pound kids. Guess what? He ain't going against 225 pound kids. And sometimes even smaller in college can't move his feet and he's tight hipped. He can't do this in the next level. Like there's some guys I've seen ranked in the top hundred as offensive line. I'm like that guy's not even top 300 player. Baby, so wow. physical. Yeah, but he can't move. And college mm-hmm. is going to run right at him, you know, like they yeah. do in high school. He's going to have to move. And I'm sitting there thinking like, I'm thinking about Keon Keeley or, or Jason Moore or Damon Wilson going against this kid. And they're going to have five flipping sacks, you know, because <laughs> this kid can't get out of stance. Yeah. You know, but he's big and physical and mauling. And I'm like, oh, you know, and that, there's that was- even some guys I have ranked high that mm-hmm. I just don't feel comfortable with. Like I have the kid, um, uh, what's his name? Francis, uh, my, my Goa. I have him ranked yeah. in the top 20 and I'm struggling with that one. Right. Because he's really yeah. dominant. I think he's more athletic, but I'm projecting him to guard. And, and that's kind of where I feel more comfortable having him there. But even there, I'm just like, I don't know, man. Like I just, I don't feel great about that one. Cause I worry that what I'm seeing is like, is he able to get away with things in high school? Cause he's so big. Now, the thing that I do like about him is he does play against really good competition, so he has been sure. challenged. Sure. I've seen film of him going against Jordan Hall and Samuel and Pemba and some of the kids they had last year, and he's he's winning reps and, and, and per- dominating. So it makes me feel a little better about it. But, like, he's an example of someone who I even am aware of the potential that I could miss on this one because yes. he's so big and strong. 
I think in the NFL, they do put too much emphasis on like combine stuff. And still to this day, it blows my mind to this day. Uh, it still happens, which just kind of is like, why, you know, why does it keep happening? I think the first recruit we ever talked about, Brian, and this was before I even started working here was Zach Rice in right. last year's class. Oh, right. Yeah. I, I was like the same way. I'm just like, he doesn't really like, he doesn't have very much flexibility to him, right? Like he's just bullying guys. Like, we'll see yeah. how he does in North Carolina. Like, I hope he does really well, but like, I was yeah. like, is that a top 10 player? Like, no. I, I don't, I don't know if I see that, man. Cause like, he was big know. and strong and physical, but he just sure he couldn't move laterally at all. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about, but why, what do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Uh, Brandon Pleasant with a question. How does the broad jump translate to on-field performance exactly? Uh, briefly, it doesn't translate directly to on-field performance. Like, hey, if you do a good broad jump, you're going to be a great post-curl runner. Right. But it does translate to other aspects that make it important, right? Brandon, I've had someone ask me this before. And I someone asked, what combine test best exemplifies trans- project uh, projection to the next level? And my answer is broad jump, because I think that you can get a lot of explosiveness out of that mm-hmm. drill. And you can see kind of the explosiveness through the hips. And I, that I think that that really like a 40 time for offensive linemen doesn't really matter when you really think about it, right? There are other uh, drills that they do, and I'm just like, that doesn't matter. Like, I don't care how much a cornerback bench is, for instance, right? But broad jump, I think, that can translate to multiple positions because no matter what position you play, you need to be explosive, right? Like, whether you're an offensive lineman, whether you're running back, whether you're wide receiver, whether you're corner, you need to be explosive. And I believe that the broad jump does exemplify that. Sometimes vertical jump does not do that because there's gravity at some points, right? It's like a guy jumps high, but guys, a heavier weight, they're not going to jump as high personally, right? But for a broad jump, I think explosiveness can be very telling for NFL success and from, I mean, just success on any level, to be honest. So I actually think the broad jump does matter a lot when I'm talking about like verification stuff for testing. That's like my first thing. I'm just like, I want to know what their broad jump was because I, I think I can tell a lot about their athleticism. 
And that's what a lot of that testing is supposed to do. It's about functional strength and functional athleticism. And then you translate that athleticism to things that you would ask him to do. Uh, but I also think that the best way to do it is I, I, where I think a lot of scouts go wrong is they, they focus so much on the, the combination of the numbers and, and don't put enough on some of the drill work. I mean, we've seen this before where guys have great numbers and you get them out in the drill work and they're stiff and they're tight and they don't look great actually going through the football drills. But the problem is you can't really test those things. I wish they, they would. I wish they would do more of that stuff. I wish they would create more football-specific drills that translate to it. You know, like time a guy, you know, his pedal, open, plant, run. Like time that. Yeah. yeah. Right? I mean, why not? You time everything else. I, well, I mean – because people are so lazy because they have decades of data on like right. what a fast 40 time is. So sure. They're like, I don't want to redo that. You know, sure. it's very lazy. It sure. is very lazy. Right. There's no doubt. So I would love to see like 40 time. I, I, I would I would completely scrap the 40-yard dash for me mm-hmm. in the way it is now. I don't care. Like, okay, the 40-yard dash getting into a three-point stance mattered back in the 1970s when receivers got into three-point stances. Sure. Right. Like Notre Dame in 1988, Rocket Ismail is in a three point stance. Right. It, okay. He's not going to be in a three point stance now. So you're not get him in their specific position that they play in football. Right. Like what I want to see from an offensive lineman is I want to see him in a pass set and I want to see him or a run set. Right. Now they may be in a three point stance. That's one where I actually get the three point stance. Yeah. Right. I don't need to see a running back in a three point stance. When is a running back ever going to be in a three point stance? When is a linebacker ever going to be in a three point stance? When's a corner ever going to be in a three point stance? Never. You know, get them in their corner stance and then have them, you know, or here's an even better one. What I would do with corners is I would have them stand there, turn, flip their hips and then run. Right. Isn't that a better gauge for what, how it translates to the football field? Like, that's how you really, does this guy really have closing speed? You know, or do like a, a, a three-step pedal open and run and then time that. Like, I would much rather see that stuff than, than like football. Like, but here's who is in the three-point stance, defensive lineman, offensive lineman, and some tight ends. Like I'd put Michael Mayer in a three-point stance. I was I would have not wasted my time putting Kyle Pitts in a three-point stance. Put yeah. receivers in a receiver stance. Get in your stance. And then and then run. Right? And then I don't care about the false starts. Because you know what? Guys fall. That's the other thing that drives me nuts. The false start stuff, do it again. Why? Because if a guy false starts all the time, I need to know that as an evaluator. This guy freaking has really bad if you know technique out of a stance. I, I should probably know that. That's why his time wasn't good. So that's one of the things I don't like about the combine is like, you know, it's, but that's, but that's why people miss so much on these guys mm-hmm. is because they're the, the drills are like not really specific to football. Like Ronnie Stanley had a bad combine, like yeah. a really bad combine. Has anyone ever like his athletic numbers of the combine were bad, mm-hmm. like bad, but has anybody yep. ever questioned Ronnie Stanley athletically as a football player? No, no, no. And that's why I say like, and, and kudos to the Ravens for not doing that, which is why the Ravens tend have always tended to be a pretty good franchise. Too much, too much information makes guys miss. Yeah. And I Ooh. will always stand by that. They, was Ozzy still the GM there? Then? Yeah. There. Um, well, yeah, he should have This last pick now was Lamar, yeah, wasn't it? I think so. Yeah. Now it's the Costa who's actually done a pretty so, good job. So yeah. Well, so I mean so, that, that would yeah. make sense. Cause Ozzy's yeah. a football guy. He, I mean, literally he was a football player. He was a great football player in the NFL yeah. and in college. So it's yeah, Brian, it I, 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 I was joking with you on the phone earlier, but I'm so serious that I'm going to see a mock draft here soon where Mozzie Smith is in the first round. Yeah. I'm just like, well, oh, yeah. based on what, what are we basing that on? It, oh, it, yeah. supposedly a great tester. Like, okay. Yep. All right. <laughs> yep. Just, that's how guys miss, man. Too much information sometimes makes people miss. There's no yeah. doubt. Here we go. We got a few more before we wrap up here. 
Jacob Watson says, what do you think Notre Dame has to do to beat Ohio State? Do you think that they can? Let's answer the second part first. Absolutely, they can. Agree. Will they? That's a completely different story. But, Ryan, why don't you go ahead and take a crack at what they need to do. Just kind of big picture, what are the things that Notre Dame needs to do on both on all three phases of the game yeah. to win this? I think Notre Dame to beat Ohio State needs to score more points than Ohio State's. <laughs> Look, I I think, Jacob, for me, it's that you know where your strengths are as a football team. I'm sorry. You know where your strengths are as a football team, right? You should be able to have advantages on both sides of the trenches, in my opinion, right? Like your offensive line should have some advantage against the defensive line, unless the defensive line takes a massive step forward. And Mm -hmm. I think your defensive line definitely has advantage based on last year's film for what Ohio State has coming back on the offensive line. So I think that that's where your strength is. So what am I going to do? I'm going to work to that strength, right? Like I'm going to say defensive line, you guys got to be dudes, man. And you have to be able to get home with four. Offensive-wise, you have to be able to push them around a little bit. You have to mm-hmm. be able to dictate. the. the you have to work at your own pace, right? And I don't care if that pace is slow. I don't care if you're working fast at times. doesn't matter. All I know is that you need to be able to run the football. You need to keep the clock on your side. Those are the biggest advantages that you have as a football team, in my opinion, over in Ohio State. The other thing is that you need to limit their playmakers. Everybody knows that they have dudes everywhere. Travion Henderson, Jackson Smith and Jigba, Marvin Harrison Jr., fantastic skill position players. You have to limit how effective they are. You're not going to ever shut them all the way out, right? But you have to limit what they do. And that makes them successful. And offensively and defensively, you need to dominate in the trenches. That is the spot where I need you to have an advantage in mm-hmm. order to play, to win this football game. Not even an advantage. Like, you need to yeah. dominate. Not just be good. Not just be a little bit better than Ohio State. You need to be significantly better on both sides of the ball uh, in, in the front line, for, in my opinion. I, I will – the only part of that I'll disagree with is I don't think Notre Dame needs to significantly dominate the Ohio State defensive line or offensive line. They just need to win that battle. Because to win that battle, Notre Dame is good enough a quarterback and running back receiver to make plays on the perimeter. I do agree with you completely on the other side. They have to dominate Ohio State up front. Like, they mm-hmm. do. They do. Mm-hmm. And, and Notre Dame's defensive line. I think a couple things I'd ask is just you need to force them into mistakes, number one. Uh, mistakes aren't always turnovers. Mistakes can also be C.J. Stroud missed an open receiver. Because this is what happens when you have a great pass rush. Your corner got burned. But he didn't have time to go to the number two read because the pressure was there, so he checked it down. They got a five-yard completion, but he made the mistake because he didn't see the, the the outside go route coming open or the post route coming open or the deep drag coming open because he didn't have time to get there or because the pressure is so consistent that even on the play where he maybe had time, his in his head, his clock is so sped up that he's not getting to that third read where that backside corner came open where he may have banged that in most other games because he's had more time to throw. So those are even those are mistakes. It's not an obvious mistake because if you're watching at home, you didn't see that backside post route come open. You just saw a five-yard completion. Mm-hmm. And I think those are things you have to do. And then final, Notre Dame has to control the tempo of this game on both sides of the ball. They have to control the tempo, and yep. that's a bit a big part of it. Then a super sticker. If you all want to know what it's like or how to become a, a really good starter as a freshman and you have to have the psyche to be a successful freshman in college, that's my guy, Tim Opel. He actually started for us my at Muhlenberg College. He was starting guard for us on a playoff team, first playoff team in school history. So nice. uh, that's my guy and was a big Notre Dame fan then. he, I wonder if he remembers when I got in trouble uh, in the Gettysburg game. I got in trouble. My, the head coach, Coach Donnelly, who passed away recently, great, great guy, great mentor as a coach. But uh, somebody narked on me in, in some of the stands. One of the parents narked on me, 
and told him that I was checking my phone during the game because it was the, the in, it was an O2 is when Notre Dame went down to play Florida State. This is that same day mm-hmm. in Ty's first year. And so I'm like checking my little flip phone, you know, the, the digital, like the green screen and the black words, like to see the score of the game. And uh, I got in trouble. But uh, Tim, Tim and his brother are both Notre Dame fans. So uh, love, love hearing from you, Tim. Hope you're doing well, buddy. Michael S with a super chat comparison, Tyler Buckner and Lamar Jackson for college. I, I, I think they're very different players. Very yeah. Different players. I mean, I mean, first and foremost, as athletes, we talked about Tyler Buckner as like an exceptional athlete, right, Brian? Like, what'd you say? Like high four, five, low four, six type of athlete, right? Like explosive, physical. Lamar Jackson's one of the best athletes we've seen come out of college in X amount of years, probably since Michael Vick. I mean, if we're being honest, like he is a just silly athlete, right? So I, I, I just, I have trouble making that comparison. I will say this at a young age, Tyler's probably more advanced from a getting through reads perspective, right. pocket awareness perspective, like that type of situation. But again, Lamar Jackson is one of the best dual threats that we've seen come out of college in a long time. If I'm yeah. being honest. Yeah. I, I love the, I love when the fans who have been around for a long time are able to, to, to tune in because we get such a different perspective to questions like best ever, right? Yeah. So Tom Flavin, who asked a great question, said, been following Notre Dame football since 1953. So he's seen some great ones. Rocket, Tony Rice, Paul Horning, Tim Brown, and Alan Page. Love it. Uh, and it Horning, six, uh, 64 Horning Brown, Heisman winners. Page was so good. He is also in the NFL Hall of Fame. And he's also a Supreme Court judge, I believe, in the state of Minnesota, correct? Uh, so. so yeah, so he's a tremendous purple, purple people eater. Back that's in the right, day, man. Yeah. Yep. So I, I love, I love things like that. Uh, really, really enjoy seeing those. That's why one of the many reasons I love talking to Lou Samoji was, you know, Lou, Lou had such a great perspective on, I mean, he would talk to me about the, you know, how good Ross Browner was and how dominant Ross Browner was. And I just like the fact that even though he's got 35 years on me from a start point that we saw two of the same guys rocking and Tony Rice. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I dig that. I dig that. But thanks for putting that list together, Tom. I appreciate that. Yep. Michael S. with a super chat. Is Tyler Buckner fragile in the mental game? It seems when things start to go bad, he starts to misfire a lot regarding uh, regarding some observations from practice. Your view. I, I can't regard. I can't report. I Look, everybody keeps asking us, like, well, you guys said this and Irish Illustrated said this. So people see things differently. It's fine. It's not a big deal. Everybody's trying to, like, start some. Well, they said Drew Pye was better. Okay, so what? That's what they saw. They're giving their honest opinion. We're giving our honest opinion. I would be shocked if somebody said that Tyler Buckner misfires a lot when things start to go bad. First of all, it was a non-padded practice. I doubt Tyler Buckner was worried about the pass rush. Uh, but I can't tell you what people are saying. All I know is is every person that I've seen that's been in practices has been that I've talked to that I know said Tyler's been really good. And as far as the mental fragile, no, I, I not even close. Is, isn't that one of not his biggest close. strengths? Like yeah. I, I feel like he's like an even yeah. kill kid. That's, that's one right. of his biggest selling points. Exactly. Like never too high, never too low, but yeah. 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 Like I said, people can see different things and, sure. and be honest in their assessment. Somebody's right. Somebody's wrong, but people can, or and sometimes it's like degrees or what you're looking for, but you know, it, it, it is what it is. Irish Chi-Town, Brian from the outside looking in, it appears that the players have full trust in Coach Freeman. This didn't always seem to be the case with Coach Kelly. I believe that's true now, but I, I think there's one final layer for Marcus Freeman to, to completely earn his players' trust, and that's game days. 
Yep. I think they need success on game days to truly buy in because, it, you know, co- yeah, buy in, I'm completely bought. In. I think these Notre Dame players are as bought in as I've, as I've seen since I've been here. Right. And I first started covering the team in person in 2010 and that's not a knock on Brian Kelly. It's just the reality of it. Okay. There's buy-in here, top to bottom, Freeman on down. There's buy-in here. And, and, but that's got to show that at some point in time, the results have to be there on the field. Cause if you're bought, bought in, but then the, you're not getting the results on the field, eventually that buy-in is going to be gone. Yeah. And, and, and then it's vice versa. You know, you may be getting results on the field, but you, you if you don't trust the coach, you're going to start thinking, well, this is more about us than it is him. And that's what we saw in the past. So that final piece, Ryan, is going to be important is the results got to be there on Saturdays. If, if the results are there on Saturdays, then, then you're going to see complete buy-in and this team's going to be really, really good. Mm-hmm. But if they're yeah. struggling for the first month and a half of the season, you're going to see some doubts start to creep in and with this team. Well, I mean, stuff's already creeping in from a fan perspective, right? Like I, I, I even parlay this to a little bit to the recruiting side of things. It's like people are panicking, right? But mm-hmm. the one thing that can solidify everything is if they come out and they play well, <laughs> like then yeah. you're like, Oh, this guy really does know what he's doing. Right. Yeah. Like, and, and not just the, you know, he carries himself well and it's the, you know, just kind of that brand of everything. It's also mm-hmm. like, wow, there's a bigger brand here too, yeah. right? Like he knows what he's doing. So I yeah. agree completely. Last question from Archer four, five, two is Notre Dame. If Notre Dame is going to win a title in the next three years, which year sets up best for them? 2022, 2023 or 2024. It's a good question. You want to take a first crack at that, Ryan? I have some, I definitely have some thoughts on, uh, on this My- question. My initial thought is 2023, and the reason for that is I feel like the class that we spend the most time talking about a ton is the sophomore class this year. So that is the Joe Walt, Blake Fisher, Tyler Buckner, Logan Diggs, Audric Estime, like Lorenzo Styles, like that one. I think when those guys are juniors, obviously they're going to have the the extra year to to hopefully get to their to closer to their ceilings. And I also think that at that point, a couple of those guys may be in contention to leaving the draft early. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. think that they're all four-year players, obviously, right? So I think when you have that team as a juniors, you have this 2022 recruiting class that now is working in the sophomore years, and then you have those freshmen coming in. Hopefully a couple of them are, I mean, with how good that class is, I anticipate a couple of them coming in and having some type of impact Mm -hmm. in 2023. That's where I think, like, collectively – you have what I think could be a star class for these the sophomore years, sophomore players this year, combined with these previous two classes. I think that that's where you because yeah. that's where I really think that they could explode. Yeah. I think they have a chance to be really good this year, but like next year yeah. when all those guys are a junior, I think that that's a really good opportunity. It's kind of funny that would actually be the year that I'd have at the bottom of my list of the three. When I understand completely, but the one part that I would talk about is what's the is the schedule set up for it. And I think, you know, next year you're talking about you got to play Ohio State at home. You got to go to Clemson. You got, you've got NC State on the road. You know, 2024 schedule is going to be tough too. You got to play at USC and at Texas AM. Very tough games. You know, but you get Miami at home. You get Virginia at home. You get Florida State at home. You get Stanford at home. So I think, and then to your point, there will be some guys gone in 2024 from that 21 class. You know, maybe Blake Fisher or Joel or both. You know, you 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 may not have Lorenzo Styles at that point in time. Chris Tyree is going to be gone. There's going to be some guys that are going to be gone. But I look at it and I say, that 21 class, you're going to still have some guys left over. There's going to be some guys still here. 
the 22 class defensive class is going to be juniors then, which I think is an excellent class. And the 23 class, which is going to be phenomenal, will be sophomores. And you're then going to bring in the 2024 class, which I think is going to be loaded as well. So I just think from a pure athleticism standpoint, I really like that class. And in playing against, you know, Texas A&M and USC, even though I do think USC is going to be pretty good by then, like really good by then, to me, doesn't necessarily concern me as much as playing Clemson and Ohio State. So I, I think, and I think Tyler Buckner will be a senior then. Now, if you're going to be able to peer into the future and say Tyler Buckner's gone in 24, then 23 jumps up to number one on my list. And here's why. If Tyler Buckner's good enough to leave in 2023, after 23, it means Notre Dame had a phenomenal season. And, sure. and that jumps him way up the list. But I anticipate him coming back as a third-year starter, and he's going to have Tobias Merriweather's going to be a junior. You know, one of De- Estimator Diggs will be back as seniors. You'll have Janarian J- J- Price will be a junior. You'll have uh, with, uh, Eli Raritan and Holden Stace will be juniors. You're going to have uh, the receiver class this year that's going to be sophomores. You're going to have, you know, the the great defensive players in the 2022 class are going to, like I said, are going to be juniors plus Keon and those guys are going to be sophomores. I think this is going to be a team that's going to be really long and athletic and talented by then, yeah. you know, and, and, and uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing what that team can be. I really how about am. All, how about all three? Can we, can yeah. we settle on that one? <laughs> yeah, I think it'd be really good. And, and the other thing is like, you know, does right is Riley Mills a fifth year guy or not? You know I mean? There's all sure. types of things like that, but uh it's going to be fun to watch. It's is Lorenzo watch. Styles back for his fourth right, year? Right. Yeah. Yep. But I mean, even if, I'm anticipating him not. I mean, even if he's not, it's like you talk about Tobias Merriweather is going to be a junior. Deion Colsey sure. and Jaden Thomas will still be here. Plus, Great House, Braylon James, Dylan Edwards, Rico Flores, Eli Raritan, Holden Stakes, Cooper Flanagan, Kane Barong. I mean, I just, you kind of start looking at, boy, this is going to have a really talented group of guys, yep. you know? And it's just, that's part of what, make, part of what makes it fun. So mm-hmm. that's going to do it for today's show, everybody. I want to appreciate all of y'all for being here with us today. Uh, good crowd today. Good, much more lively and uh, positive discussion uh, about uh, about um, just today. It was just much better, much better vibe, much not less arguing and bickering and all those different types of things. So I really appreciate y'all being a part of what we're doing here. Hit that like button, everybody. Hit that subscribe bell. Hit the notification bell. Share this podcast. And of course, uh, sign up for the message board. We finally, I think, got the bugs worked out. It was smoking fast last night, Ryan. Uh, hasn't gone down in the last couple of days. As I say that, I got to have some wood. I don't know if this is real wood or not, but I'm not going to audit anyway. So hopefully this thing keeps rocking and rolling tonight. So tune in tonight at 6 o'clock Eastern. Sean Styers is going to be back. They're going to talk about uh, linebackers. I think they're going to have some thoughts on the freaks list as well. So you'll get a different perspective on that. And then they're going to talk a lot about the Notre Dame linebackers. Obviously, Sean was there yesterday. Got to interview Al Golden, got to interview James Laronitis, got to interview the Notre Dame players. They're going to talk a lot about the Notre Dame linebackers tonight and more, even more about the Notre Dame practices. So uh, really appreciate y'all very, very much. We're both trying to click on Mesa's thing at the same time. So take Mesa AK's advice, everybody. And if you're listening via podcast, please give us a five-star review. We would appreciate that very, very much. And visit the IB store to get that smooth Brian and Ryan Polo, as you can't see it if you're listening to a podcast, but it is a really, really sweet polo and very comfortable. That's the thing. It's very comfortable. Anyway, have a great day, everybody, and we'll talk to you again very, very soon.